immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Hello and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 58, with me, your host, Oliver Cadell, and Bjorn Jacobson. Hello, everybody. It's been a while since I've been on this podcast, but it's it's good to be back properly. How you been? I've been good. I've been busy. Uh, my own YouTube channel is going great. I got work to do, work with a couple of companies, working on a really big project and doing the usual help with some smaller game audio stuff, so... Let's plug your YouTube channel. Tell us more about channel, what you do, who's it for? Yeah, so my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Kujo Sound, is a channel where I try to provide content. I try um, to provide the content that I would have liked to have had when I started out in the game industry. So the whole point being that there's tutorials and other things for beginners and aspiring sound designers, but also trying to be a little more you know, advanced. So I do actually have quite advanced um, hardcore followers, like high-level guys from, from really big companies watching it sometimes because there's shared knowledge in terms of how to use Ys, how to use engines, how to use this and that, and then also just aesthetic ideas and so forth. And currently, for the past couple of months i've just been been streaming games um not as your average streamer but literally putting on a game and trying to decipher the audio design of it and talking about it and yeah soon there's going to be a big wise tutorial about how to make a game in wise so nice we were all laid off at io interactive for hitman where i was working at the time and i was looking for a job and trying to find out what would I, as the audio director of certain projects and so on, actually like to see if, if people like me were applying or aspiring sound designers? And came to the conclusion that I should add more in-game content, like more in-editor this and that content, rather than just sending, you know, linear mixes of stuff. But one of the things that that I really wanted to show off at the time was that whenever I was Googling uh, how to solve certain issues... I would always bump into programmers who were giving advice or really bad presenters. Not that people are bad in that extent, but you, you've we've all been there. You Google something or find something on YouTube and the channel is completely overkilled by subscribe to the channel, this and that, commercials and people who are, you know, geared up, fired up so much that they almost scream in your face when they're making the video <laughs> so that you... The information that you're looking for doesn't come until like 20 minutes into the video and it takes them one second to actually explain. So I started to do the videos about um, how to code for no coders. Like if you're not a programmer, but then trying to explain how would you code this yourself? Because normally if you ask a programmer, they will have a thousand questions about where do you want it, namespacing and this and that. And that's not necessarily something that sound designers understand. And the communication process between programmers and sound designers is definitely eased up if you understand as a sound designer, what is code actually? What does it actually do? And what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, very cool. Well, it's becoming more and more relevant these days for sound designers and various audio creatives and engineers who do work with engines. Let's talk about some of the recent news. Um, 
I'll just very briefly mention that, I mean, we talked about Dolby Atmos pretty much for the past um, 12 months on every single podcast, one way or the other. There's been another uh, development uh, very recently. Logic Pro have integrated Dolby Atmos into the DAW and now um, offering content with Dolby Atmos is even, not only that it's uh, a new exciting feature for a very popular DAW for music producers um, around the world, the way it's integrated is pretty much seamless. Uh, we'll make sure to include an announcement link in the podcast show notes, but the evolution continues. And um, and I guess an interesting thing to mention that maybe for the for the change, this is where the playback might be more truthful in relation to Apple binaural rendering, uh, which maybe previously wasn't accessible. So I would be interested to find out for sure if that's the case. Uh, if there's anyone anyone out there who knows the answer, please, please let us know. But um, yeah, Apple's own software, Apple's own integration, the ecosystem seem to be gelling quite rapidly now. Definitely. But also news in the video game industry lately. Oh yeah, something really big happened today. Was it today? Yeah, I think it was yesterday. Or maybe it happened yesterday and then it was announced yesterday really late. But Unity, Unity 3D, Unity Technologies, or I think they're just called Unity now, have acquired Vita or Veda, whatever it's called, um, the Veda Digital a company that was formerly owned by Peter Jackson or at least formed by Peter Jackson and 20th Century Fox, what they have been doing was to create VFX tools and visual visual animation tools and so on for the video, like the, the, the motion picture and film industry. Now, the interesting part for Unity to sign up with this is not necessarily from an audio perspective, but the fact is that Unreal Engine has previously been mentioned a lot as a contender in terms of how to render stuff really fast for live motion picture and so on. So Unity picking this up is is definitely a big deal because Unity wants to be a contender in terms of serious VFX tools and so on. There has been a little bit of critique about it because a lot of indie developers are frustrated about the fact that Unity seemed to be picking up um, small things and small improvements and stuff that they add to their, their engine and then just leave it again, kind of like an indie developer sometimes does. You get new ideas and you implement it. But it's definitely interesting. So they're going to add this to the engine so that there will be like a complete tool chain for 3D creation, simulation, and rendering, and it'll be faster to use, better to use, and so on. It's quite interesting. Um I don't know if it'll create tools that will be making, let's say, VFX easier to do, but or sound design as well, yeah, SFX at all. But the fact that you can use these powers, let's say, VFX stuff, will probably give you more information about what is around you, kind of like the Niagara system there is in Unreal these days, which can definitely be used for measuring room sizes and so on and, and help you create wonderful reverberation and other things. So... It's pretty exciting news. It's big, so it's going to cultivate further development in kind of and and enhance the sophistication of um, audio use within the game engine. And um, yeah, I mean it's a um, over billion dollar acquisition, which is a quite serious move. Um, no, I mean 
the the tools that they are currently providing are not audio tools, but the information that the tools can provide can be used for audio purposes. Yeah, and, and the Unity stock plummeted like five percent on on um, on stock market opening today. So I guess this wasn't the best news for some people. But then it went up again, as it always does. As it always does. Yeah. Our guest today is Max Horbein. Max is a co-founder and a managing director at Encircled Audio Solutions. Encircled is an official and the only licensee of their iSono software. Max, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And uh, you calling in from Berlin, Germany. Yeah, it's night out and I'm here in the beautiful town of Berlin. You know, it's getting winter, it's not so cozy as some other places in the world right now. We're delighted to have you. Tell us, how did you get started in the immersive audio industry? Well, I guess in the immersive audio industry, I got started with my first job directly after the university at the IOSONO company uh, directly. Uh, I was hired as a uh, system and planning engineer there. Uh, I had a bit of background from the university um, looking deeper into some fields of virtual acoustics. And we were trying to simulate some concert halls. And uh, I created or I developed uh, together with um, a science team there uh, at the TU Berlin Technical University in Berlin. Uh, we developed a psychoacoustic model for reducing the resolution uh, uh, or the temporal resolution of uh, impulse responses for creating virtual acoustics. And um, through that, uh, I got acquainted with the IOSONO company, which uh, at the time that was around, I don't know, 2011 or something. Um, I saw them as an innovative and actually one of the few companies on the market uh, dealing with 3D audio as a commercial product. And um, I got in touch with them and I was very glad to get hired directly after the university. Can you share your experience at Salford University, England and the Technical University of Berlin in Germany? How different two educational systems are in comparison? Well, uh, I just mentioned I graduated uh, with a master's degree from the Technical University in Berlin. Before that, I did a bachelor's degree at Salford University in Greater Manchester. And uh, that gave me kind of like a basic understanding of audio technology and uh, a little bit of scientific uh, background going into various fields of acoustics. And that's kind of like a, yeah, a bachelor's program, which gives you a basic overview and some insights of scientific work and maybe some practical insights already into the industry. Before going to uh, England, uh, to uh, Manchester and to Salford, uh, I was already an independent sound engineer for theaters and uh, broadcast and did some of my own production in studios uh, with my own bands and uh, some other productions. Uh, so I already got kind of, yeah, got an idea what I wanted to do or where I want to, where I want to go uh, in the fields of audio technology. Um, but in Germany at the time, giving it's already 15, 20 years back, um, 
I saw the problem in Germany that you have to go to kind of like a physics department and study a whole lot of other stuff that I was not interested in before going into some kind of an acoustic area, uh, which I was more into, uh, especially when coming from a practical work as a sound engineer. Um, and in England, uh, I found some good programs actually looking directly into some practical, I don't know, yeah, areas such as, for example, audio technology, which by I what I was studying. Yeah? So you don't have to have a gen general physics degree and then do all the other stuff, and um, which I probably wouldn't have even been able to uh, to do, <laughs> to be honest, because I'm not a, a huge physics guy. But uh, And then uh, concentrate on something that I'm really interested in later on. So uh, a friend of mine, an old school friend of mine who studied in England, he actually gave me a, hi a hint that there was a European program that would fund students uh, from Europe to go to the UK. And I applied to a few universities and the Salford University, there were a great bunch of people, like all the tutors and professors, they were all super nice and welcomed me very well. So I thought, you know, give it a shot. And um, Manchester sounded like a great place to go. So, uh, you know, I was at that time, I was really keen on going abroad and making some experiences somewhere else. And um I would say the difference is uh, going to U UK university at that time, uh, it's much more school-like, right? So you go, you have a schedule, you have something to do at the end of the first, second and third year, and then you get your degree. And it's not super problematic to do that. Where in Germany, I saw, I was trying to study somewhere, something else uh, for a while. Um, and it's always, you have to, find your own courses somewhere and you you build your own curriculum and all that stuff. And then uh, you get lost and uh, your studies may take uh, quite a while. And it's not as specific as you wanted, wanted to do. So that's what I found was uh, it's very practical. It's very straightforward. You know what you uh, need to do to get your degree. And uh, that's what I was up for because I was already in my mid-20s and I didn't want to, you know... Uh, waste too much time on this university thing. <laughs> yeah, thanks for sharing. That's really interesting perspective and how um, seemingly similar things can be so different at the same time. I mean, the the system, uh, the way I experience have changed because of some whatever, what's it called, the Barcelona something education university uh, uh, thing. I don't, I don't know what it's called. But uh, so in Germany today, it's, already, it's also, it's not a diploma, degree you do anymore, but it's also all changed to bachelor's and master's and all that stuff. So um, I was able to continue my studies straight after I finished from the UK because the, the system in Germany has changed to a master's program in Germany at the Technical University and dive into the fields that I found for myself such as virtual acoustics are very interesting. And so I could really dive uh, a bit deeper into these topics. So for me, it was a glad, uh, like a, a lucky situation. Yeah. So you go to the UK, do a straight degree, and then uh, you come back to Germany and you continue kind of like on a, on a master's degree with a bit more in-depth into the field you want to go to. 
So in that sense, I was kind of lucky. Tell us about Encircled. Well, we see the Encircled company as a service company in the uh, around the topics of immersive or spatial audio, really. Um, but uh, we founded the company in 2019, uh, almost uh, two years ago now, a bit more than two years ago now. Um, and as a continu continu continuation of what was IOSONO doing before. Um, IOSONO was founded in 2004, coming from the Fraunhofer Institute and uh, creating this uh, hardware product that is commercially available to the market uh, with the Wayfield synthesis implementation. Yeah, so you can apply or deploy a device based on, uh, with using Wayfield Synthesis for multimedia audio installations. Uh, and they did that for uh, quite some time and they got into some trouble. They had to uh, file for insolvency and uh, other things. And then um, they've been bought by Barco, a projection company in Belgium. A quite large company and uh, yeah, they acquired Iosono and um, they had a special interest in cinema and in immersive audio, object-based audio in cinema. I don't know if we're going to talk about this, but a little bit off topic, I would say. But um, so they acquired Iosono before uh, and saved the whole team uh, in Germany from having to look for other jobs or you know, just, um, but we kept the IOSONO stream. So we were in development of a cinema product for Barco, but we kept the IOSONO business uh, running. I was an integral part of the team, of the applications team, and looking into all the uh, projects around the world. Uh, uh, did a lot of traveling and we saw a lot of great uh, implementations and a lot of great projects uh, using that IOSONO device. But after some time, Barco has decided to close down the pro audio department as well. And uh, so I basically got fired, more or less, uh, at Barco. But uh, with my colleague, Jan Langhammer, that I founded the company Encircled, we decided this product is too good and there has been too much effort going into the product, developing it, making the software user-friendly, putting all the features in that are in there for the, yeah, the ISONO software, uh, that we thought it's uh, not a good idea, especially us being enthusiastic about immersive audio and seeing that uh, being deployed in such great pro projects. Uh, because we are we were working in the field, not so much as developers coding on a laptop or something, but we were actually hearing the results with all our partners and in, in these projects. And we decided uh, we can't just leave it at that. And then we uh, discussed with Barco um, a deal, and now uh, yeah, and that gave us kind of like a business case for a small company uh, to continue having IOSONA on the market and uh, keeping it deployed in the field for great projects. Yeah, it was uh, kind of like an endeavor to start your own company, making all these decisions, uh, what you have to do. It's uh, before I was just like an employed engineer and was getting my job on the table and I had to do it well, but now we have to make some other decisions as well and, you know, keep... Uh, keep the money in mind and see where the project's coming in from and all that stuff. But um, yeah, 
that's uh, really how we started the InCircle company. We wanted to keep the IOSONO in the field. And um, since then, since the two years, we saw, okay, we cannot, um, well, as planning and system engineers at Barco and at IOSONO, uh, we were always involved with our partners to plan systems. It's not just like here you have a device, do with, do with it whatever you want, but you have to give quite a lot of support um, to your client to actually install the system right, to make it sound good, to come up with the right speaker arrangement, to see how many speakers, what kind of speakers, what periphery to use and all that stuff. And, and this is also why the business case, I believe, is a little bit tough because uh, when like being in a big company uh, and seeing uh, like the business people um, uh, on top of me, they are always looking for kind of like scalable business models and things like this. And there was always the hope that something like IOSONO, a wave field synthesis uh, pro audio device uh, for creating virtual sound fields would be something you would buy, install and make like great events. But we saw as like the practical engineers that every partner, every project requires support, requires understanding of what needs to be done. And so the kind of like the scalable business model is not really there. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's hard for some people just looking at the money um, to make it, work within a within a big enterprise yeah so um i'd like to go back to sono in a moment and talk about its capabilities and all the amazing work you've done around the world but it's a perfect segue to a hot topic which is wave field synthesis it's something i wanted to talk about for a long time and um i'm finally i, I think we'll be able to dive in a little bit deeper um max you're certainly an expert on the subject can you Tell us what is wavefield synthesis in theory and how can it be implemented and experienced in practical terms? Well, in general, wavefield synthesis is just a rendering algorithm to uh, recreate a wavefront uh, of a point source and emit it anywhere in space uh, on a defined area, so to say. So it's an algorithm that you can use to uh, recreate a position of an audio event somewhere in space. And giving the history of audio with stereo 5.1, now looking at 714 or Atmos or Ambisonics, a wave field synthesis can be, well, pure wave field synthesis cannot be uh, applied in 3D space, but a combination of other algorithms uh, makes it viable to call, to call it 3D. Yeah, but I think wave synthesis itself, if you're purely looking at something being recreated through that algorithm, is still on a horizontal plane. Uh, but basically, it's yeah, it's a rendering algorithm, right? I, I believe most of our listeners are familiar with object-based audio, ambisonics, and you know, uh, playing back, rendering that across large speaker array. How does WFS differ to, you know, more widespread workflows and playback methods that people are familiar with? Well, uh, the IOSONO implementation of wave field synthesis is also an object-based uh, rendering across large arrays. 
I would say. Yeah? So we're looking at multiple loudspeakers that you arrange around an audience area. And uh, you have an audio input being it played back, played back from a device or let it come from a mixing console or something like a microphone feed. And you combine that with metadata where you describe an object being somewhere in the field. And um, with these two elements, you can create, you can recreate the perception of uh, an audio event somewhere in space. Yeah. And uh, using WFS, uh, you would uh, calculate so-called uh, speaker coefficients, uh, which are nothing uh, else than speaker feeds. And uh, depending on the position where this object is, Uh, you will activate a group of speakers for uh, representing that audio event where you want it to be, basically, right? So, um, and in that sense, like, we are also familiar with Ambisonics, and you guys are also familiar with Ambisonics, I'm sure. Um, it is uh, very similar. So you have an object-based approach and you have multiple speakers and you can place an audio object somewhere in space and you have some rendering algorithm that uh, would recreate that position somehow. Uh, the, the main difference I would see towards Ambisonics that, well, the at least from the experience I have is looking at all the Ambisonics implementation or hearing some of those uh, that we do experiments in our lab as well and listen to all the different solutions. Um, and Ambisonics would always involve all the speakers and create some level and phase shifting to, um, uh, yeah, to represent uh, uh, an object in space. Uh, and that, uh, and you know, if you have all speakers playing all the time, with the different timing and phase, whatever Ambisonic does, um, and you move off center or you move outside uh, kind of like a sweet spot area, you will get, uh, from my experience, uh, a different listening experience wherever you are. Yeah? So for, for a good, for, a, for a, an area or a sweet spot position that works very well, and you can definitely uh, use it to create amazing sound fields. But if you start moving around and if you're going towards the edges of a sound array, your experience will always be a little bit different. And with the speaker coefficients that are calculated or speaker feeds that are calculated in WFS, they're associated with the direction of that object so you will only involve speakers in that direction. Yeah? So uh, for my experience, when walking around uh, in an area where, well, wave-fit synthesis is always defined for a certain area, and uh, if you walk around that area, the localization of an object is much more stable than in ambisonic systems. In terms of physics and in terms of practical hardware implementation, difference between, I don't know, panning an object across large speaker array and kind of hearing it being panned and played back through those speakers versus being, I don't know, 25 meters away from the speaker array and perceiving that very same bird uh, chirping like right here, even though it's invisible, but the way you perceive it is it's as if it's 
inside of the audience, like a quite significant distance away from the from the transducers. So this is the magical bit, isn't it? In terms of physics and hardware that delivers that precise difference. Yeah, well, so the last thing you mentioned is something being kind of like virtually somewhere on an audience area, which you, where you can hear a sound uh, where there's actually no speakers, is something that we would refer to as a focus source. Yeah, and the focus source can be calculated uh, through WFS with uh, by using a lot of speakers and recreating a wavefront of a point source uh, within the audience area. This, as I mentioned, involves a lot of uh, speakers. Uh, to And what it is, it's actually you calculate uh, uh, sound pressure level maximum at a certain area within the audience area. And that kind of like gives you the, the sense of something being inside uh, a loudspeaker array. Yeah, so a virtual source on an yeah on an audience area. You can approach this from far away. So let's say if you have a the focus source uh, on the audience area and you approach this focus source from outside. So if you're not standing between the focus source and the speaker array that is kind of like emitting it, then you can approach it and you can hear it as a virtual thing being somewhere in space without having a physical speaker there. But as soon as you're standing between the, the intended point of the focus sources and the loudspeaker array playing it back, then uh, you will uh, face uh, the problem of uh, the first wavefront hitting your ear, determining the, uh, the, your di uh, the, the direction of the sound, and then you have a mislocalization. So you have the possibility to create an SPL maxima on the um, on the uh, audience area, which is a great effect. So you can approach it and you can stand inside that virtual position and have come some kind of like a, a weird in-head localization. Um, and you can use it for, a, for great effects uh, for an individual audience members, I would say. Um, but to create an SPL maxima that is that you can dif differentiate uh, towards some soundscapes being around you, you uh, need to have a lot of speakers. Uh, so you cannot, like with a system of 16 or 30 speakers, it will, will be very hard to calculate um, an SPL maximum on your audience area that is distinguishable from, from anything around. Yeah. So in in the studio of Iosono, we did have a or in the in the lab there we did have a, um, a loudspeaker array of two hundred plus drivers um, surrounding the audience area. And with this, with this, we were able to create a focus source with an SPL difference from sounds being around of plus nine dB, and that was very sharp. Yeah, uh, and. Um, so that was a really great effect. But as soon as you're talking about kind of like optimized systems where speakers have an adjacent distance to each other, a little bit further apart, um, then this will be very hard to create a convincing effect. So all the WFS systems using focus sources, I have seen use kind of like special loudspeakers, specially or like custom made to... Um, allow 
Well, the physics behind wave field synthesis is that you have an infinite small distance of loudspeakers to each other to recreate a, a wavefront um, of a point source um, realistically. Because a driver, a speaker, has a physical body, you cannot have speakers being infinitely close to each other. Yeah, so you have to have some kind of like approximation for this. One approximation would be you build special types of speakers that have very uh, close, uh, like drivers that are built into a housing of a speaker that are very close to each other. And then you build a continuous ring uh, around the audience area and uh, you come up with uh, easily 200, 300, 400 channels. And then uh, you start. I think I think the Technical University in Berlin they have um, a um, like a classroom or a, like a conference hall uh, with a continuous ring of like almost thousand drivers, and um, specially made to create focus sources within the audience area. I know other systems they build special speakers where you have like an array of 64, 60, up to 64 small drivers within one housing. And then they can kind of like pinpoint that SPL maxima somewhere. It's like a, a, a super sharp beamforming loudspeakers using the wave field synthesis. But uh, we realized, or Iosona, that was a little bit before my time, um, Iosona realized building custom-made speakers and uh, putting continuous ring of speakers in uh, realistic, I don't know, venues, let's say a concert hall, a cinema, a showroom, uh, multimedia galleries or whatever, uh, is not very practical and it's super expensive. So if you're talking about, yeah, loads of money uh, and in uh, the real world, this is really Uh, unless you have some incredible funding through research or whatever, uh, this is not really practical. So what ISONO has done, they created kind of like what they what what we call is kind of like an optimized implementation of wave field synthesis, and with uh, some smart rendering and some pre predicting of um, moving sources uh, and some smart filtering, they were able to uh, calculate wave field coefficients for speakers that are further away, up to two meters, up to two and a half meters. And if you still have like an array with speakers that are two and a half meters apart from each other, but you have a lot of those, Uh, then you can still create some psychoacoustic effects of the wave field synthesis. Because the focus source that you've mentioned is not the only one that is specific for um, uh, wave field synthesis. Another one would be uh, a so-called plane wave. Uh, and a plane wave is uh, such a source uh, as perceived uh, like very far away from you. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite, behind the speakers, so to speak. It's kind of the opposite, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's it's always outside of any speaker array that you would look at. And uh, the position is maintained to be as far away as you could uh, kind of like imagine or whatever. We, we have an analogy of the sun. If you walk along the beach and you look at the sun, you would always perceive the sun 
on the same part of the day coming from the direct of same direction, even though you're walking down the beach for hundreds of meters. Yeah. So we call that identical direction. So if you would ask uh, a group of people in the audience, please point uh, to the direction of the source that you are hearing, which is a plane wave, then everybody in the audience, if it's a good implementation, should point kind of like in the same direction. So if you have uh, an object being kind of like half right in front of you, the person um, on the far right would still point half right from his ear to localize the sound and the person uh, on the left would have set kind of like the same angle. Yeah, So everybody would point at the same direction. Whereas a point source, it's uh, the, what is it called? Um, it's uh, the identical location. So if you have something on like at the center of the audience area, some, something half right, if somebody would sit all the way to the right of the audience, they would probably point straight straight to the front or a little bit to the left. Yeah? So everybody in the audience would point to a different direction for a point source. Yeah, it's like having a glass in front of you and if you move around, you see it from a different direction. But a plane wave kind of like always moves uh, along, along with you. So, so that's interesting because um, if you are to work with visual, some kind of um, 3D projections and holograms, so this um, a visual position should perfectly align with the virtual position of the acoustic uh, emitter at the same time. If it appears to be in different directions for different members of the audience, but you only have one visual reference point, then suddenly you have this mismatch. Um, I guess this is where the the technology comes in to, to compensate. I think the plane wave is also has been used uh, many times to uh, be the type of source that makes it sweet spot independent. Yeah. So if you have kind of like a 5.1 or even a stereo mix with intended position, uh, and this is also matching with visuals, Yeah, something happening on the left of the screen and something is ha happening on the on the right of the screen. And then you attach some audio sources to it. And this is kind of like what you want to hear uh, in the sweet spot. Once you move outside, you can take basically your uh, this reference of being something being left or being right with you. And this is uh, completely sweet spot independent. This works on the entire area that you define beforehand uh, for your loudspeaker array. Yeah. And uh, like some experience or some, some some feedback I got from mixers working with uh, plain ways features is that it gives them. Uh, a lot of freedom if they mix in large venues, they mostly sitting on some mixing position for a movie or for uh, even 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 a concert show. Uh, but using the play play plane wave feature, they can be sure that the intended position is also recreated uh, further out. Yeah, if if the audience is sitting somewhere else, they don't have to kind of like run around in big venues to always check if if uh, if kind of like the intention of the mix is still there, but it keeps it stable, so to say. And 
if you keep it in mind for your concept of mixing, um, it's it's kind of like you use those things as something uh, that gives you kind of like a lot of depth in your mix, yeah. Because you you you're virtually creating something that is really far away and that makes it really big, and um, and you can take the localization with you, similarly to the sun, like a little. Uh, I don't know, uh, brass solo or something, or an individual um, thing that is very important to 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 your show element. You w wouldn't probably use as a plane wave because you want everybody to look at that position. And having a, a, a closely matching WFS system at hand, you can recreate that point source. Also, being in a stable position, much more uh, stable than any other rendering that I know of. Yeah? So even a point source, anywhere where you sit, everybody would point to that, that position where you intend that uh, source to be at. The thing I was mentioning before, we did a couple of... Um, Uh, installs uh, with the Walt Disney Imagineering team and theme parks around the world and like Sh Shanghai Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea, Tokyo Disneyland and uh, uh, in some parts of Florida, Animal Kingdom and such. And um, most popularly, uh, the Iosona system is uh, deployed in their Soarin rides. Soarin rides are kind of like flight motion simulators. So you step inside some wagons or like like a gondola if you go skiing, you know, like some of those, those things. And then you fly into a giant screen that is kind of like uh, this, uh, I don't know, some... 30 meters high and uh, they are curved. So you're flying into the screen and then these gondolas, they can move left to right, front to back. And then you, you have a flight through, I don't know, some, some tourist attractions or some parts of the world. And uh, you tell a little bit of a story and uh, using the plane wave feature, you can make sure that everybody uh, because you have gondolas, I don't know, three stories up or four stories up. So they're sitting on top of each other and you have maybe uh, 20 or 30 people sitting next to each other. Yeah. <coughs> so using the plane wave feature there makes sure that, you know, some parts of the movie are kind of like a sweet spot based for every person in the seat. Yeah. So everybody can see the kind of, or hears the audio image being directly in front of them. And that's uh, very cool, uh, as, a, as opposed to, you know, you're sitting far right and then you hear everything just coming from the right speaker and it's a bit lame because then you lose the sense of the whole experience flying over a crazy mountain or through a couple of towers uh, in, a, in a dreamy castle or something. Um, so that's definitely uh, an example where I saw... where. Where the sound designer itself, the film mixing people, um, understood the power of the plane wave very well, and they used it for certain elements in their mix quite well. You know, I, I've I also seen people using the plane wave feature 
such as because in iOS Uno it's easy. You just press a button on an object, and then it's not a point source anymore, but it's a plane wave. So you don't have anything to do with the physics or the mathematics behind it. In the end, it just becomes a button, and you can flip between those two. And what happens is if you flip to plane wave, you suddenly involve a lot of speakers. So the source at first becomes large. Yeah. So you have maybe uh, an object being positioned on one speaker and you only hear one speaker. Then you flip to plane wave and suddenly you have 20 speakers playing. So your immediate response would be, oh, it's just a bigger source. That's great. I can make something huge or something. But if you start walking left to right, you already you also realize that it's not only sounding much bigger, but you have like the stable localization coming from everywhere. And if you understand what that can do to your mix, you know, you can use it much more efficient or much more precise situation of whatever you want to do. Let's talk about the, some of the case studies in a bit more detail. Um, Bjorn, um, have you ever experienced wavefield synthesis in Denmark? Uh, no, not in Denmark, really. Not, not in any universities or some research facilities or something? I've, well, I've heard about it uh, during some of my studies and how they were experimenting with certain things like ambisonics and trying to do similar stuff. But I've never really seen studies or anything like that where it was used in a creative context. It might exist in more technical engineering universities, but I haven't seen it. I, I've seen like the most physical correct where speakers are very close to each other and uh, you can involve a lot of speakers to create focus sources and plane waves and stable localization of point sources um, in university or research facilities. But that's due to the fact that maybe high fidelity is not the, um, the main focus, but the localization. So, because if you're talking so many uh, channels and custom-made speakers, you have to compromise somewhere, and most likely it will be on the sonic quality of the driver or the housing or something itself. So, if you have something with a high resolution, um, you are making compromises on the quality of the speaker, in my experience. And uh, in these research facilities, you have like small speakers, small driver in special housing, uh, 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 creating those continuous rings of speakers around you. And uh, there you can make, uh, like, first the implementation itself is can still be a research topic. I mean, there have been implementation. For, from my knowledge, WFS is, uh, so to speak, Wikipedia knowledge. So you can go on Wikipedia and uh, read the mathematics how to solve the Kirchhoff-Helmholtz integral and uh, implement it into software and creating feed, speaker feeds. So this, this is nothing, uh, it's kind of like IP related to just a few, I don't know, uh, stakeholders or something, but every university could create their own implementation. And coming to the point that having an audio object being panned around in the room using wavefield synthesis is smooth, is in real time, is being is able to 
you are able to automate uh, movement passes and put it into a master file and making it playback. And uh, you can react with the Wayfield synthesis implementation on irregular shapes. So you have, for example, a squared room, not a circular room, or you have a rectangular room, or you have an irregular, irregular shape, or you have some blind spots uh, in your in your continuous loudspeaker ring this is where the complications are coming into play yeah uh, normal implementation of wavefield synthesis of a continuous ring i think every like a lot of universities i've seen around the world have their own implementation but to make it really practical and being able to design a system is another story And uh, to ma maintain sonic quality for all these situations is also another story. Um, so um, that's that's why uh, I don't think you see too many systems using Wayfield synthesis uh, in the world, apart from like yeah, uh, university or research facilities. Uh, we had some research facilities, uh, not on a universal level. Uh, but uh, for some, um, uh, yeah, how do you call it? Like a like a, a company that is developing hearing aid um, devices for people with impaired hearing. They built uh, high resoluted uh, uh, WFS system in one of the labs to test their hearing aids. So they they create. Um, general situation like sitting in a coffee shop or walking through the park and then uh, you create like uh, and you have it was it is a, a creative process to to make these sound fields yeah some people playing in some corner some other people having a chat you walk along and i don't know some birds are chirping so this this actually a, a creative process to create these realistic scenes but in the end they use these the, these these realistic scenes to test their hearing aid devices whether like you know how much background noise can you um allow before your hearing aid doesn't work anymore or whatever they have controlled environment they have the same scene over and over again so can they tweak yes. incrementally as opposed to Kind of doing it in the real world. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, because they are not creating uh, sound fields. Because so they have they have a controlled environment. They have always the same scene, but they are developing the hearing aid devices. Yeah, so they yeah. tune them to to those kind of situations. Uh, we had another research lab that was very interesting, and as far as I gathered uh, from the client at BMW, they used uh, in one of their cars. Uh, Oh, they, they they rebuild a car, a BMW car, uh, with uh, I don't know, with like some 120 little drivers anywhere, everywhere in the car, where you have moving mechatronic parts, uh, so they could uh, simulate. I don't know. Uh, it's like uh, if you if you have an automatic um, motor to, to to automatically move up the window up and down. So uh, you have the servo engine and um, you can implement or you can use different rubber wheels or you can use it at different speeds or whatever. And they can simulate based on acoustic models of their me mechanics and uh, use the Wayfield synthesis car to simulate the moving up, uh, the, the movement of 
these parts and then uh, make a decision on how thick should the rubber be or how should how fast should the motor work or something like this. Yeah? So uh, they use this the WFS system to get like super su uh, um, super good localization possibilities anywhere in the car. It could be a windshield wiper, could be something in the back, could could be some some knobs on the seats, and they can simulate all that and then make the decision on how they want to build stuff. So uh, that was uh, impressive. I was sitting a couple of times in these uh, in this car and listening to the to the simulation of certain uh, elements, and um, that was kind of like uh, as far as I got that was a successful thing for them. This actually reminds me of something I wanted to ask you when it comes to creating content for WFS systems. Would you say a, a successful, well-functioning WFS system is content origin agnostic, largely? Natural recordings, synthetic sounds, music sources, speech, whatever. It, it will deliver your kind of vision. Or by selecting the right type of material, you can kind of help the system to deliver your vision better, more effectively. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely makes sense. I'm well. I'm pretty sure you need some experience mixing spatial. Yeah, so making some decisions when to use uh, the effect of something coming from the back over you to the front, or something circling around you, or uh, whatever you want to do spatially, you need some experience to make those decisions when they make sense. Because if you do that all the time, you're just overwhelming your audience and they just say, okay, that was a bit crazy, but I don't know, was that cool or was it a little bit too much? Yeah. So, but I, I guess this is uh, some experience film mixing or live mixing or engineers, whatever. The, 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 uh, it comes uh, in a lot of ways, you know, using effects, using delay effects or using whatever crazy morphing stuff. It's, um, so you need some experience to work spatially, that's for sure. And then you get a good sense of which uh, sound elements make sense to move around in space. So, um, you know, just talking about wavelengths or something, if, you, if you're having low frequency noises or low frequency, uh, yeah, effect sounds, uh, even bass elements, they have such a long frequency, you won't be able to localize them anyway um, very, very, uh, very good, right? So you need to, I guess, concentrate on having something spatially moving more in the middle upper frequencies, yeah? That's, uh, but I think that's common, com com common for uh, many systems, like even working with Dolby Atmos or working with ambisonic systems. Uh, I think you have to, you uh, pretty much come to the conclusion that you have to kind of like to, to give a good effect on something moving or something being localized very, very good in an effective way that works better for some frequencies than others because others can't be localized that well. Like I'll just give you like a very basic uh, practical example. An ambisonic recording of a moving car 50 meters away from the microphone position, you already have the information of, um, of an object position in three-dimensional space, its movement, trajectory, you have Doppler effect, 
And then say, for example, you decoding such signal across your WFS uh, system. So you kind of already interfering perhaps with something you're trying to do with your system or perhaps doubling up on and and even um, enhancing it versus, for instance, using like a, like a dry, well, as much as it can be, or isolated source of a car and then you applying the object position in 3D within the system and you're kind of imposing that effect through WFS as opposed to having it imprinted originally and then obviously with a double effect and everything that and you kind of panning as an object. So can you kind of maybe elaborate a little bit more about the the dynamic between those decisions? Well if you have something like an ambisonics recording where you have all the spatial information already kind of like encoded in your uh, in the way you record it and the the way you like decoded through some whatever uh, the, uh, plugins or something. Uh, what we probably would do to use though to do those these kind of recordings, we would probably um, leave the rendering or the, the the decoding through Ambisonics as it is, and just play back the output um, uh, the output channels as. Uh, kind of like virtual sound sources, static sources in the WFS field. So if you're decoding something to third order ambisonics, uh, you have like, uh, how many, I don't know, 16 channels or something on a second order, 16 channels. Uh, I'm uh, third sure order, 16, yeah. Yeah, third order, 16 channels. Then you would create kind of like a, a spherical shape of virtual positions or objects uh, in the WFS field or in your IOSONO setup, because as I mentioned, IOSONO is using uh, multiple algorithms to allow for elevation and to allow for panning uh, for loudspeaker arrays across the audience area. So you would create um, like basically your, your ambisonic output uh, 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 feeds as virtual sources and let the ambisonics recording do its decoding. Right, so this is how you can transfer uh, kind of like an ambisonics uh, recording, for example, into the into the um, into the IOSONO system without interfering or without doubling um, different rendering algorithms. Because if you're just placing a, a virtual object, kind of like on a sphere spherical shape, in your IOSONO system. And you'd let the rendering or like all the movement that is done through the Ambisonics rendering do by the Ambisonics tool itself, then it will not interfere, right? Uh, whereas if you want to have a pure WFS mix and make sure you want to control the trajectory or the movement of individual sources, our recommendation would always be come with dry signals, all in mono and start creating your space from there. You can use reverb plugins, you can use, uh, uh, like you can do your signal chaining and use uh, uh, even 3D reverbs that are uh, out there uh, these days and just bringing them into the IOSONO with virtual sound sources again, uh, or with, with virtual objects, like create kind of like a 714 Dolby Atmos 
uh, reverberation grid within your WFS system. And then uh, you send like all the reverb channels as static sources in there. But your WFF mix would be made out of mono signals, dry, and then uh, do all the movements and all the automations within that environment. Uh, ISONO brings a complete workflow. Uh, so from content creation to system setup and to uh, system tuning and all the different playback options you can think of. Uh, so when you, when you want, when you are using ISONO and uh, the wave field synthesis capabilities, um, you have to at some point stick to the workflow that comes with ISONO. That's a, that's a, that's a plugin within the uh, digital audio workstation window. And uh, it's the spatial audio workstation that also comes from, from us in Circle these days, and um, which was developed by Arasono. And uh, this is, uh, with this, you can create uh, individual objects, up to 64 individual objects. And um, yeah, based on, on mono tracks. Or if you have something like Ambisonics coming in, you kind of like create uh, a bed, so to speak, of virtual objects and feed the ambisonics rendering into that bed and let all the movement uh, come from the ambisonics rendering. I wanted to briefly talk about the ISONO technology ecosystem. What does it involve exactly? You already mentioned um, that it's a, it's a plugin. It's not compatible with third-party DAWs. It has to work with your own spatial workstation. Can you describe the full uh, signal flow chain and how it all connects, how it all works with, with the speakers as well? So if you're producing for ISONO, you would probably start with the Spatial Audio Workstation. The Spatial Audio Workstation is an exclusive plugin working only in Steinberg Nuendo. So in Steinberg Nuendo, you can activate, you can download it from our website and then you can buy a license and then you can start working with the Spatial Audio Workstation in Nuendo only. And the, the Spatial Audio Workstation, the plugin, the, the way it works, it, it can... Uh, show or uh, you can work with all objects within the panner at the same time. Yeah, All the different panners uh, that I know is you have to insert it per track and then you make your panning from there. But if you want to have like an overview of all your tracks and all your audio events within one big panner and, you know, uh, make automated, automated movements from there, it is... Um, uh, you need another integration, another way of integrating. It's a, it's a software thing, as far as I understand, integrated into a uh, digital audio workstation. I'm, I'm not a Cubase or a Nuendo user, but I, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm not wrong, I think the channel count also makes a difference between two packages, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we need a 64 um, uh, bus, a 64 channel bus that... It's, exactly, Cubase doesn't have that. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not too sure of any. Uh, uh, a Reaper goes um, to to infinity, probably. Yeah, <laughs> Reaper is very flexible, and Pro Tools only supports okay. up to third order All sixteen right. channels, so it's also quite limited. Yeah. So we need a we need a dedicated sixty four channel bus to send these all, all these audio objects to a specific output. Yeah, and uh, mm -hmm. Steinbeck has been uh, very supportive and had has allowed us 
to implement that 64-channel bus into Nuendo exclusively. Yeah, so uh, we actually have an implemented like a, in the source code of Nuendo, um, and which kind of like Evit or Logic or whatever they wouldn't allow to go as deeply into their software uh, apart from using kind of like a VST plugin. Or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, okay. but that's the first step. So, uh, Nuendo SAW that is coming from us, um, and you can use the SAW in, in, in internal and external mode. In internal mode, you uh, we supply multi-channel output up to ten point one, so up to eleven channels. You can create a full IOSONO mix on internal mode on your headphone, on your 5.1 setup, on your 7.1 setup up to 10.1. And then if you come... Does it have a binaural rendering option if you work in headphones previewing? or does No, no binaural. Some kind of, no. You have to work with speakers mm. to... Or, like, or headphones, yeah. So you can make your headphone mix, but in stereo, not binaural. Right, okay. And... Gotcha. Um, once you go to the venue or you go to a studio where the, that is equipped with an IOSONO system, you can switch that spatial audio workstation plugin with the Nuendo to external. And then mm -hmm. you uh, are able to uh, send up to 64 objects individually with a MADI card, uh, for example, or IES card. Uh, uh, to the IOSONO renderer and with the second or with the network connection you send the metadata so the object-based workflow audio data via MADI and uh, metadata via network uh, into the IOSONO uh, system and then the IOSONO system will uh, match kind of like your mix that like all the mm -hmm. objects that you have placed or automated in your panner to the given loudspeaker setup that you define on the IOSONO machine itself. So, mm -hmm. so that's mm -hmm. the second step. It's an IOSONO software, um, but the IOSONO software runs on a, a Linux distribution or on, on Linux, but it needs to be in order to maintain uh, fully function or like to be sure that it's always fully functional, uh, it's on a dedicated hardware. We have some recommendation what kind of hardware you should use uh, and what kind of uh, Linux distribution you should use. And then you can set up your own hardware. We provide hardware from Encircled all the partners that we have around the world, they provide hardware that is uh, stable and trustworthy and reliable. And uh, on this dedicated hardware, we install the IOSONO software that understands, for example, in production workflow, the audio and the metadata from the SAW and renders your mix onto a given loudspeaker setup. And you can create those loudspeaker setups with the uh, configuration part of the IOSONO software. So in IOSONO, you have like a, a loudspeaker um, designer where you say, okay, I have like in a horizontal ring, 24 speakers. I have maybe a second layer of a horizontal ring made out of two, 12 speakers. And then I have a ceiling grid made out of eight speakers. And they are. They have. I don't know a certain distance x y z uh, in a common coordinate system, and you can create fairly user friendly. I would say these loudspeaker setups yourself, and 
um, then create a preset within IOSONO that is using that specific loudspeaker pre uh, um, uh, file or that arrangement that you virtually recreate from reality. And uh, then the mix from the SAW will be rendered in real time onto this loudspeaker setup that you configured in your IOSONO software, right? And yeah, uh, and in order to um, have kind of like an easy playback function, you can master uh, from the SAW a so-called IOSONO master file. It's a container file format uh, that contains all the metadata and audio data, and you can put this single file onto the IOSONO machine and load it into a player and then play your IOSONO mix from there. So you don't only, like in pre-production, I mentioned uh, installation uh, installations at Disney or at some other multimedia shows. Uh, just uh, this month or last month, there was a big uh, video mapping, uh, mapping uh, art gallery in Melbourne, The Loom, The Loom, it's called, uh, was opened, and they have kind of like a 24-7 show to run. So they cannot have an open window session where somebody can mix up individual tracks or mute stuff or whatever. So they need kind of like a playback file that nobody can mess with, right? Uh, and then you have a player within IOSONO. You can just load in the IMF file there and uh, start it from time code, start it from, to, to make it in sync with some video playback, or you can start it manually, or you can have some remote control commands saying like, you know, start preset X and play player now or in 10 seconds or something like this. Uh, so that makes it a re really reliable and robust a piece of hardware that is sitting in bigger multimedia installations where at the end you just have a daily staff that needs to press three buttons and make that show run rather than having an engineer knowing all the ins and outs, ins and, outs and being able to mess something up in the configuration. And the configuration itself, how to render onto different loudspeaker files is also something, uh, I don't know, you don't need to be, uh, definitely don't need to be a scientist, but you need to have some grips on uh, what's the, what, what are the, 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 the problems with WFS or even with just IOSONO systems and get your hands on configuring these presets. So, because there are a lot of features, you can like level uh, speaker groups Entirely, you can level individual speakers. You can have a complete tuning set uh, for FIR and IIR filters to make an overall system sounding good anywhere, independent from the direction an object comes from, right? So uh, what we like to give to somebody to play back an IOSONO file is... Uh, Wherever you put a sound source within your system, it should always be sounding good. Yeah. Or you, you should always be sounding smooth if you pan something from a circular ring into a ceiling grid. So you need to make sure that all the speakers are leveled correctly and things. And all these, uh, and you have a lot of, a lot of options uh, in the IOSONO configuration world. Yeah. So that's a 
bit of software that uh, you can learn. Uh, I think it, all, it is all derived from common knowledge for people uh, that are installing PA systems. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a learnable thing, but uh, it requires some understanding of what you need to do. So in the end, you have a piece of hardware where you send in the audio and that renders to uh, up to 128 with one device, up to 128 loudspeakers, right? And that's what it is. Uh, you can also work with live inputs. So something coming in from a mixing desk uh, or from other playback devices, you can... The, uh, the Iosono machines also have MADI inputs and AES inputs. No Dante, no AVB, but currently only MADI and AES. But you can send an audio to the, to the Iosono machine and create the metadata that you create, for example, in the SAW. You can create that internally on the Iosono machine itself. So you have a so-called scene designer in the software where you can activate individual objects and place them somewhere in the room or even move them. And then um, you can create a live show from there. Yeah, So you are just having 6,428 uh, direct buses from a, from a mixing console. You have your scene designer on ISONO and then create your spatial mix uh, inside ISONO. And uh, you can also um, control these objects via OSC, uh, open sound control messages, and have them on, I don't know, automated tracking devices such as BlackTracks or TTA, or you can uh, create your own apps. We have a couple of apps for Touch OSC and Lemur, where you can yeah, create up to 64 objects on an iPad move them around on an XY uh, pad and have some elevation um, and then create your live mix on an iPad, for example. Yeah. But you can interact with OSC, I think, uh, fairly freely. Yeah, So you can make customized devices easily. Well, let's talk about logistics. Say for, for somebody who might have a commission that they believe the WFS, it could be a good solution to, or what is the kind of the entry barrier here in terms of the cost, in terms of um, access to such system? What is the kind of the scalability options and what is the general process? Can you kind of go through the steps and options there for, for our listeners? Depending on the region, I would say you can, uh, you know, you should approach one of our partners, uh, I would say like in Germany or Europe, in general, it would be us, the Encircle company, supporting these systems or like giving you the hardware, being able to give you training. And uh, and if it's not for a specific venue, but if it's meant to be for something touring, uh, there uh, definitely a workshop or training uh, would be useful. And uh, for other regions, we have a partner in the US uh, a company that has been um, in close relationship with IOSONO since 15 years or something. They're sitting in California. It's audio individual design. And then we have a partner in China. It's a full dimensions multimedia engineering. Um, they are very active in, Chi in Shanghai. Uh, they have like loads of installation, landmark installations uh, deployed IOSONO there. And they are 
continuing with the year with the themed entertainment industry in China uh, um, have some things rolling there and uh, we have a partner in Australia uh, sounds in motion they are sitting in Sydney and a good company in South Korea uh, sound Korea Eng they are called so these are would be the people that in if you're working in any of these regions that we would refer to if you want to do something in Europe Uh, you're better off with us and uh, we help you in identifying what you want to do. What, uh, like, what's your project? Is it uh, some video mapping thing? Is it, uh, is it a live show thing? Is it uh, a showroom? Is it something where you want to communicate certain messages? Um, is it, going to be permanent is it going to be temporary is it going to be touring things like you know this and then we have to come up with a good speaker design so we are like iasona is completely speaker agnostic so we can choose any kind of speaker that fits your budget or fits um, the requirement which i think the budget is always governing Like most of the time, I think the budget's governing this because you have great speakers doing like great PA speakers for any situation. Uh, but uh, if you're talking about 30, 40, 60 speakers, then you probably will move away from your best choice fairly quickly because I guess uh, an entire IOSONO system would cost you, I don't know, let's say a starting... 70,000 euros, more likely 100, 150, and, you know, further up, it's always uh, possible. But, you know, if you're talking 30 speakers, I, th I think uh, a system much less than 30 speakers um, is, well, it's definitely not WFS. You can always use the flexibility of iosono to build individual loudspeaker arrangements and render with uh, the great sounding panning implementations that we have and use the remote features with open sound control and remote control commands and um, making it a re reliable system but uh, it's it's not going to be wfs if you're only talking 16 speakers And then the question is, if you want to have like a 20,000 or 40,000 or like 20,000 euro device uh, sitting there doing some rendering for you for 16 speakers. I don't know who, like not many people are like actually deciding for this because they are, you know, ambisonic system or self-made uh, systems uh, that are much cheaper. I think that gives a rough indication where what the entry barrier is. We're talking about the mainly the rendering hardware system that is the most expensive component here. Plus the, the amount of speakers, depending what kind of speakers and how many of them. And then all of a sudden you're looking at maybe 100,000 euros or pounds to be like a functioning WFS platform to work with. So I think that gives a good indication where, where kind of things, uh, where do you need to start from onwards? Yeah, or for who it would be interesting. I mean, it's like because uh, obviously we are supporting because, as I said, we are passionate about, you know, immersive art in general. So uh, we we are also supporting 
artists or institutions that would like to use such a system for, I don't know, temporary things or whatever. Uh, so there's, it's always a good idea to ask us uh, whether uh, an ISONO system could be applied for this and that event or situation. But if we are talking about commercial installations, Uh, then that would, this would be the entry point, yeah? around 100,000. Hmm. We, we spoke earlier about Jeff uh, Levison, who made an introduction. And uh, I remember several years ago being in Shanghai, where he, he was doing a, a mini tour around Shanghai with some of the WFS installations he worked on and that you guys worked on together. So, and, and you mentioned that one of your partners is very active in the region. Can you talk a little bit about what WFS installations have you worked on in Shanghai, essentially? Uh, well, first up, thanks for Jeff for introducing us. So he's a great ambassador for the ISONO system and he's been working with it since uh, the beginning, I would say. So since uh, the early 2000s, uh, he was already involved and uh, he's a really good guy. He's very passionate about the, this whole topic. So thanks for, thanks to him, we, we, we met and have this conversation. And um, yeah, he's been uh, working with the Full Dimension Multimedia Engineering Company, they're called, which is our partner in um, Shanghai or in China in general, if you want to uh, buy an ISO Sono system there. And um, as you mentioned, they've been active there. I think one of the landmark installations would probably be a... Um, exclusive uh, concert hall on the 126th floor of the Shanghai Tower. It's kind of like a complete bronze golden room with a huge sculpture in the middle that is kind of like moving along with the construction of making this very, the second tallest building in the world stable in the sky. So it's kind of like attached to this whole structure, how a skyscraper like this, uh, you know, maintains strong winds and stuff so uh, the uh, the and it, and it's meant to be a cultural yeah concert or like or like meeting spot where concerts happens and uh, sometimes some road shows step by and things and it, this is a really um amazing room where it's a, it's, a, it's a concert hall with 250 speakers surrounding you kind of like in a donut shape so you have like some 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 hallways to to wander around and you, you always look in, into the middle of this uh, of this uh, sculpture and it's all very aesthetic and looks super nice and they have like a three layer uh, system like three 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 loudspeaker layers on top so you have enough room for projecting elevation or like uh, moving objects um, up and down and, you know, a uh, pretty high resolution of uh, speakers surrounding you and creating, you can create an overall experience uh, in certain gathering spots of this uh, concert hall, or you can create individual or like from, from the sound designs that I know uh, is that they create certain spots walking around um all these different hallways in the concert hall, um, experiencing something new or something something different. So, but it's definitely 
going up there and seeing the hall and then having a sonic experience is there in there is definitely uh, something special i would say tuning the whole system was also uh yeah i don't know i spent like two weeks uh, just tuning the speakers and making the 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 system in total sound uh you know uh, uh to be appreciated. So, uh, but uh, and then sitting there on the 126th floor uh, late at night, and then calling with you know five words in Chinese, asking uh, to bring up the elevator going down so I can go to bed was also a funny, funny experience. <laughs> yeah, that's epic. Because if they fall asleep at three o'clock in the morning, and then you're stuck there uh, in the Shanghai Grand Theater, which is on the People's Square in Shanghai. Uh, one of their main theaters in Shanghai, uh, I would say, or like one of the biggest um, for opera and uh, general drama theater. In a couple of small theater buildings, they have ISONO systems there, so they can make uh, not pure, like more multimedia or more immersive shows, more experimental shows, I would say. And uh, for the 20th anniversary, we did a amazing open-air event for the Magic Flute Opera together with the Hamburg Opera here in Germany. It was kind of like a co-production thing. And we had a crossing stage. Uh, so it was a stage, yeah, shaped like a cross. So the, so the, uh, the soloist could wander in between the audience area and the audience area was separated into four quadrants. And each quadrant had... Um, a ring of speakers and a ceiling grid uh, being able to render WFS. Uh, so we had, a, and this was all fed by a symphonic orchestra. So uh, we had live feeds going into the mixing desks uh, and then with direct buses onto the rendering machine. And we used, I don't know, some spaces feature. It's kind of like a multi-room configuration possibility with an ISONO. Uh, it's a bit complicated to explain, but it allows you to render a spatial mix onto many audience areas. So it makes it even a bit more yeah, flexible or whatever. And so we created an orchestra mix for each of the quadrants of the audience area. So they would have the same musical experience. And then we would have the soloist walking along the cross, uh, singing the songs of the magic flute, uh, and like having those with kind of like point sources so that people would always hear the singer where they are on stage, you know, crossing through these quadrants. And that was tracked manually with some uh, pad devices and uh, was definitely a special, especially event for the 20th anniversary of the Grand Theatre. I think these are uh, like two of the things I would point to today. Apart from, yeah, as I said, they are very active on fashion shows, on um, uh, traditional Chinese, uh, what is it called? Kung Q opera productions. They are involved in things like this. Majestic Theater, we did a great show. Um, but yeah, the list is... I, th I think in total, ISONO has like more than 150, 200 production uh, over its history. So it's. Can I selfishly ask, 
Yes. Uh, do you have any productions in currently in operation in the UK or or London? Yeah, well, we have a great ambassador of a producer called Marco Perry. He has a studio in London equipped with an ISONO system. I'm pretty sure uh, if we make an introduction there, you can come to his studio and he has a he has a good studio setup with uh, 40 some speakers high resolution ring and some kind of like spherical like like a dome shape kind of thing in the studio in his shed as he call it calls it but this is uh, for production and it's an active artist uh, i think this summer we had an installation at the london design biennale in the somerset house uh, that went for a few weeks and uh, I know he's up for a few other installations uh, ar around in UK at the moment, uh, but they are being set up. Well, as we're wrapping up, I'm going to ask you um, a three more very quick questions. Well, firstly, Max, what is the future roadmap for WFS in the mainstream? Mm, the mainstream, yeah. That's... Uh, something I think we will still have to see. Because if you are talking purely WFS, it involves a lot of speaker. And um, so it, it is an investment you have to make there, but definitely like comparing it to other, yeah, as I said, ambisonic systems or just panning uh, uh, system systems. I think that like, if your requirement of stable localization and uh, like the features we talked about, the different point source, plane waves and focus sources and things like this, um, there's definitely uh, always um, a room for WFS systems. But in the mainstream, I don't know, uh, it's more, I think, multi-channel systems using various algorithms uh, and being able to deploy reliably into multimedia installations this is where i see the mainstream yeah so and if you for example think that iosono gives you all the features that you need to have a reliable system then uh, you can go for iosono even if with the channel count or with the kind of speaker arrangement you would have you don't purely use wfs yeah so for me, like in the mainstream, it's a tough question um, because it's uh, and looking at pure WFS, physically correct WFS. Yeah, it looks like the future is more on the hybrid side where maybe people want flexible solutions. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And this is where we see some of our development. Uh, you mentioned the ADM format, for example, and we need to see um, like how we um, properly can link to some of um, the mixes or some of the contents that's available in ADM format and you know use the open sound control to trigger our uh, objects uh, on the rendering side to be able to, to play back this kind of content. Because it's not very practical to have only specific IOSONO mixes being produced for systems. Sometimes people want to play other formats. And <coughs> I think with this 
with the with the ADM, with the ADM and having uh, Dolby Atmos and other Ambisonics mixes uh, um, available in that format, we need to uh, pro pro properly work with it. And then I think it can be more mainstream or the content can be more spread as opposed to having just like, you know, specific ISONO mixes available. What is the best way to find out more about your work, yourself, and um, all the amazing installations that you guys have been working on around the world? Well, for sure, we have our uh, website, uh, www.encircled-audio.com. And there we always highlight three big projects. I think the magic flute is highlighted there with some pictures and some Disney installations uh, that we've done lately um, are highlighted there. There's a reference list and you get all our products and the documentation for it. You get our contact and all the contacts of our partners around the world. And um, then uh, from we have, I don't know, some LinkedIn and Facebook posts that we regularly do on our installations. I think, you know, you find, you find some good documentation or some good feeds about the Loom project, which was a big one for us in Melbourne, opening a couple of weeks ago, because it's a huge media art, multi-sensory gallery with more than 120 um, uh, projectors and uh, some 200 speakers, which we use in multi-room configuration. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a big one. And we post stories on that one, LinkedIn on my personal account, Facebook, we have an encircled page. Uh, so that's, um, yeah, that, that, th those would be the easiest ways. I mean, we are going to conferences and to uh, some conventions, uh, ISE, but, but mostly as networking thing. I was like, our company is small. We started only two years ago, even though we, we are looking at a strong history from the technology side from ISONO, but, uh, you know, like making a convention showcase is something that uh, we still need to grow, I would say. But, you know, these public installations, like the, the London, London Design Biennale was, was fine. You know, if you, if you was, I think was a nice experience uh, Marco Perry, who also did uh, the remix of Black Lake of a Björk song and did go on a world tour in um, in great places uh, and everywhere in the world. Uh, he's a great producer, and whenever he comes up with an uh, with an exhibition, I think it uh, should be worthwhile going. And as I said, he's an ambassador of this technology, and whatever he does spatially, he will use it and then uh, you will hear it on our social media. Max, can you share one piece of advice that really helped you in your career? Yeah, I mean, it's like I can look only at my career and I was taking my time for things. Yeah, So I was uh, uh, taking my time to find a special interest in spatial audio, in virtual acoustic. It was nothing that was served to me straight after school so I can make a degree and get a career going. But I had dig, I had to dig in deeper into my personal interest of making music and getting into the recording field and finding my way as a sound engineer. And these things do take time and they don't, you know, 
like like you you kind of like have to search for them and in order to search for something that you're passionate about you have to be curious and you have to uh to have the will to learn stuff new always now i'm in my 40s and i still have to learn stuff new uh, uh so this is something uh open-minded you know working with different people always like taking an interest of what other people are doing uh communication is a big thing you know you need to talk to people you need to share ideas and things like this so but yeah i think it's um once you found something you're passionate about you should stick to it and maybe uh take the one one or other detour to you know be become better at it or something <laughs> i mean it's quite general but you know this is what i that's how i see myself you know i was never a straight guy going you know for the first choice or for a career based uh, thing the mostly following my interest Max, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've learned so much from you today and I hope our listeners did as well. Thank you guys for having a show like this, a podcast like this, focusing on this uh, topic. I mean, it's sometimes it's technical and sometimes it has like so many various fields. But if you look at the experience that come out of it, even, I don't know, binaural game audio, VR, all that stuff that's out there, live uh, pre-production, all that. If you have some guys like you to focus on that and kind of like, you know, spread it apart, it's uh, like interesting, definitely a cool thing to have. Thanks again and take care. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Bjorn Jacobsen. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott, Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit 1618digital.com slash immersive audio podcast to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.